Today I'm going to talk about Christian hope and Christian fear so that we can find out what these items mean, how to protect against one of them, and how to encourage the other one. People often fear what they do not know, and hope can seem so unnecessary in the face of cynicism. We are called as Christians to have a spirit of power and love, not fear. However, fear can be helpful even though it is an imperfect bond with God. I'll discuss what this means. Even more helpful is the aspect of hope. Faith and hope are intertwined, and I'll show you how cynicism can be beat by hope and knowledge. Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome to The Whitaker Show. This is a show geared towards talking about the many key lessons and takeaways of Christianity with an eye towards apologetics. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you so much for tuning in as always. So let's just dive in here. What are some passages that mention fear? Well, Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Which is an excellent verse. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love, right? So let's not forget this one as this one's going to be the focus of the episode. And then lastly, Proverbs 29:25 states, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Let me give you a small synopsis of what these passages passages mean and why they are important when talking about fear to to other believers and non-believers, okay? The Isaiah verse has four parts to it that are very valuable. The first is, fear not, for I am with you. Now, if you have ever read the Old Testament, then you would know how strictly the Jews had to live as they didn't have the Holy Spirit, per se, to, um, to like nudge them away from sin. They had the law, which kind of defined what what sin was and um, and such. They ha- They also had physical manifestations of God. Yes, but God designed a strict system that would orient their hearts toward love and Him. Yes, the Old Testament law was strict, but we all know what happens when we get off of our schedule when on a diet, right? You eat 85 pounds of Dairy Queen while laughing maniacally. What? No? Just me? Alright, alright, fine. Just me then. So, What is God saying in this passage? He is promising that he will be with you 24-7. Right? Isn't that great? You should fear not because the God of the universe is literally dwelling with you to banish that fear. Right? The second statement is, Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Dismay can mean distress, right? So when you're in distress because you're late to work, you forget something important at home, or you are scared of going out due to COVID, God is with you, right? God's saying here, don't forget, I created all of this and I conquered death, hell, and the grave. So chill out. Curveballs mean nothing to God. And when you give or um, like once you give or if you've already given your, your life to God, he literally has your back. Honestly, he's got your back either way. Um, God says in the next part, of that original verse, the one from Isaiah 41.10, I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. 
this is another promise where God is saying that he will directly give you the help you need. So he says, fear not, worry not, and bam, he will give you strength, right? So let me tell you, psychology backs up God in what I just said. Um, having controlling fear and stress, like having controlled it, you are going to be automatically endowed with strength due to your clear mind and perspective. So again, endlessly, science proves God. God is saying the same thing here, except he is doing these things for you and with you, right? It's not you like relying on your own strength um, and controlling fear and stress. It's God working with you in it, right? Your strength is not self-made, it's provided by God. And let me tell you, I'd much rather have God's strength than my own strength, right? I'd rather have the God of the universe being my strength than William Whitaker being his own strength. Lastly, God says that he will uphold you with his righteous right hand. So not only do you get to live a life of no fear, stress, you know, lack of strength to handle things, but if you ever slip in these things, God will support you with his right, with his own right hand. Now, it's not just any hand, right? It's his righteous right hand. Why is this different? Because you're being supported by a pure, virtuous, ethical, honest, and selfless hand. I think that's how it's mentioned in the Bible. Furthermore, this is the right hand of God. God shows us in his word that the right hand is demonstrative of equal honor with God and is symbolic of God's power and greatness. So speak this over your life. God is giving you the personal attention and care that you don't deserve, but he has deemed for you regardless, right? So what does all of that have to do with fear? Well, part of my point in making an episode on fear is to denote that when we see the Old Testament or hear about the fear of God in the New Testament, it is not to symbolize a God of fear. Not at all. I didn't say God of fear. I said fear of the Lord or fear of God. No, you would need to consult the second verse I mentioned um, to understand why God mentions a fear of the Lord. First John mentions that perfect love cast out fear. So we are not perfect, first of all. And disregarding fear is not wise when like worshiping God. Why? Let me read you a statement from a Scottish Christian minister who lived a hundred years ago. Persuade men that fear is a vile thing, that it is an insult to God that he will have none of it while they are yet in love with their own will and slaves to every movement of passionate impulse and what will the consequence be? that they will insult God as a discarded idol, a superstition, a thing to be cast out and spit upon. After that, how much will they learn of him? Right? And we saw what he just said directly when Moses went up on the, on the mountain that God was literally sitting on, literally sitting on, and due to Moses being gone so long, the Jews forgot their fear of the Lord and therefore wanted another God to lead them. And they were the ones who witnessed the power of God directly bestowing pestilence upon the Egyptians, parting seas, and physically guiding them through the wilderness. You know, like once with a cloud and then the other times with a pillar of fire. Still they slipped and earned God's wrath by worshiping another God. Skip to the Old Testament and God designs a framework that is exceedingly strict called the law. But that law develops love, love toward righteousness, faith, long-suffering, and many other positive values in the Jews in worshiping him. Developing this perfect love of God's ways cast out 
fear. Though, though, the law is impossible to follow, which is why Jesus is so important, as is God's grace, right? So, let me give you another example that kind of may hit more closer to home. You want your child to fear you as a father. Why? Because if they aren't going to respect you enough to listen to your commands, heed your advice, and show you the deference that you are owed, then you want them to at least acknowledge the repercussions of their actions, i.e. fear. However, love is much more powerful than fear. Engendering love in your child and respect are surefire ways to keep them from fearing you because they desire to please you so as to avoid the fear in the first place. And this is exactly the point. I would much rather be loved, right, than feared as a human being. But how many times can you attest that human beings have abused that good nature and you have found yourself giving the cold shoulder, getting in fights, and otherwise attempting to engender wariness or fear in the other person? I mean, you walk at night in Chicago, right? Are you going to walk around with your arms in the air yelling love and happiness, or are you going to make yourself seem intimidating and wary? Probably the latter. Just saying. This is exactly why Jesus came to show us the example of one who is perfect, God, and how even when ostracized and crucified, he still died for their sins regardless. That's an example we are hard-pressed to ever fathom. However, we can try, and God encourages this, again, with psychology and science. These things do prove God. Living life in fear of someone or something raises one's cortisol levels, which can induce cardiovascular disease and issues, not to mention the mental effects of sustained high levels of cortisol. Please go research cortisol and its effects on the human mind and body. PTSD oftentimes is linked to extended periods of fear and stress, right? However, living life calmly with low fear and stress and realizing that God is supporting you with his right hand and is giving you strength, will, not can, lower those levels and let you live a healthier life. Right? And this is even true for those that, you know, even practice like Buddhism or those that do like meditation. I mean, they, they have ways for reducing their cortisol levels and overall improving their blood pressure through meditation and through absent-mindedness, that kind of stuff. What's cool is that we don't have to do all this kind of stuff. We just have God. Right? God gives us prescriptions. You know, like when you read the Word, when you meditate on Him, when you spend time with Him, living a godly life in Christianity is literally a surefire way again i mentioned that phrase again surefire way to fix a lot of your health issues i mean god can honestly fix any issue like he is the great physician so fear can be a positive item but god has designed a way to grow that fear into love so that you align yourself with him and therefore with goodness more accurately right so what is the power of hope hope is something that we have read thousands of books on, hundreds of movies, and can see millions of times each day, right? So from the smile when you give someone good customer service, like if you're a banker, like me, to having someone get the job they have been dreaming of, hope is the force that makes humanity unique, right? So um, that's especially true in every single fantasy novel. Again, hope is the force that makes humanity unique. Oftentimes, you'll see humanity triumph because of the courage that was inspired by humanistic hope that causes the tide to turn in a war or to beat back the forces of darkness 
at the last minute. Bad guys don't get that. They don't get the kind of hope that I'm talking about here. You can't hope you overrun the good guys. Hope is a positive aspect. Bad guys have fear. What do I mean about fear? Didn't I just mention this? Yes, but hear me out here. I couldn't just say negative hope or such, right? I am saying fear because that is a form of negative hope. Yes, wrath, anger, and revenge are all forms of fear. How? Wrath and anger can be engendered by the fear of being hurt, losing someone or something, and even the fear of fear itself. The same goes for most negative emotions. Hurt people hurt people. The orcs in Lord of the Rings um, were terrified of Sauron, right? They fought out of wrath due to being scared of being weak. Also, they were completely scared of Sauron. Therefore, that's not hope. That's fear, right? Like, they may have been wrathful and, and they may have been, you know, they had their own self-interest and they were very warlike and stuff, but they weren't warlike due to any kind of hope. They didn't have hope that their life was going to be better. They had accepted their darkness and were just living in fear. Also, we saw the Empire, you know, the Galactic Empire from Star Wars, reign for decades in Star Wars, ruling by fear, right? But was beaten by a pitifully small force called the Rebel Alliance. Why? Because the Rebels may have feared the tyranny of the Galactic Empire, but they had hope that good would win out by banishing the fear the common folk had for the Empire. And Scripture backs this up. And no, I don't mean that Scripture backs up Star Wars, though I am a ginormous fan of Star Wars, at least like the legends in the books and such, not the new um, content, we will call it. So what I mean is Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, there, which says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Right? God is showing us here an example of what fear breeds. The Galactic Empire did all of these things. All, all seven of those things. These aren't hopeful things. Furthermore, Proverbs 8.13 states, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. God says. Middle Earth had a fear of Sauron and Morgoth, who came before, because of the evil they brought about, you know, like the absence of peace. The people of Middle Earth feared the retribution of, of Eru Iluvatar, who was kind of like the god in Middle Earth, because they saw that the goodness cast out darkness, like Melkor and Morgoth, right? Evil power just breeds pride and arrogance because the power comes from themselves are from negative emotions, right? And the the same goes for us in the real world too, right? You know, getting out of the fantasy world. This is why the diminishing of self to the glory of God actually gives us hope as we can rely on a perfect God to be our cornerstone and to support us. Just reference the right hand thing that I mentioned, right? Which is which is truly epic. I mentioned all that nerdy talk to show you some examples of hope and fear in some of those widely acclaimed stories of all time. Star Wars and The Lord of the Rings are massively huge series that take good guys and pit them against bad guys. Admittedly, the huge Christian, um, like the Christian influences on Tolkien are greater than Lucas, but you get the gist of it, right? Tolkien was a Roman Catholic. So hope is not wishful thinking, but confident expectation. 
What do I mean? Romans 8, 24 to 25 and Hebrews 11, 1 show us that hope is a firm assurance from God in reference to things that are unclear and unknown. Proverbs 23, 18 tells us that hope is a fundamental component of righteous living. This hope shaped early Christian and fundamental Judaism as well. The Jews still expect a Messiah, even though Jesus already came. And as Christians, we can see the signs all over the New Testament, sorry, all over the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah Jesus. Faith and hope are intimately intertwined, as I mentioned in the intro, as terms in Christian life. Never forget that hope requires faith, no, you know, no matter whether, whether that is secular or like religious. So let me throw at you some secular stats, right? And also, as is fitting, let me leave you with a large mega dose of hope. If you ever hear someone mention anything negative about times now and the state of the world or those who would disparage the prosperity America and the world have now, cite them this part of the show. Every day the news tells people, and this is why I tune it out, um, that we are all doomed. Whether it's terrorism, nukes, economic downturns, social unrest, bad leaders, negative poll data, inequality, xenophobia, or any other bit of, of sensationalism. Now, don't get me wrong. The, some of those things exist, right? I just, again, the goal is to focus on hope, and I think they get the volume wrong. But honestly, they have it dead wrong. A survey taken in 2017 in Sweden and the U.S. asked people, all things considered, do you think the world is getting better or worse? 10% said things were getting better in Sweden and 6% said so in the U.S. And that's insane, right? That means over 90% of people in Sweden were like, nah, things are worse. And then over, what's that, 94% of people in the U.S., the most prosperous nation in the entire world, think that things are getting worse right now if you don't believe me cool right don't take my word for it but let's not forget basic history lessons here or if you don't know them then basic internet searches for information so um, from a survey and from a whole like work collaborative known as all world and data by 1950 75 percent of the world lived in extreme poverty as of 2017, that number reduced down to 10%. Now, that is an amazing stat. However, what is extreme poverty, you ask? This is a condition characterized by severe deprivation of basic human needs, including food, safe drinking water, sanitation facilities, health, shelter, education, and information. Now, it depends not only on, on, on income, but also access to services, according to the UN, as well as income of less than 1.9 international dollars per day. Those are the standards that the world has for studying and then looking up extreme poverty. People that have experienced that are down to just 10% of the world population. That's amazing. Think about this. The number of people in the world now is seven times what it was 200 years ago. Also, 200 years ago, illiteracy was only for the elite. Now eight out of 10 people can read and write in the world. You can literally search online for this info and find it on the first four or five links you see to check me on this, right? So again, just to reiterate, 10, we're down to 10% or less now that it's 2021, other world population that is experiencing extreme poverty. That is an extreme improvement in world events. You know, 
That is massive. And then the fact that most of our people can read and write means, right, that no longer are we subject to all the negative things of the past, right? No longer like, are we subject to ignorance of world events or of history. Everyone has the means now to be completely educated and make more informed decisions. Now, have you seen healthcare now as opposed to the early 1900s or even the 1800s? Those, those standards of care are not even close. Child mortality is down from 40% in 1800s to below 5% in the world now. Kids are surviving at drastic rates, which is an amazing thing. Freedom is a nigh impossible quantity to quantify, but let's try. I have here an index from Our World and Data that cites a study on this. This index suggests that in the 19th century, almost everyone lived in autocratically ruled countries, right? Monarchy, monarchy was a huge thing. Today, more than half of the global population lives in a democracy or republic. The huge majority of those living in an autocracy, four to five, live in one autocratic country, which is called China. Moral of the story, get off the news. Live your life and see around you the prosperity you can see, feel, and touch. So many studies now show that most people in the US and UK think that global, think that global po poverty has increased. That number is two-thirds of Americans believe this. Let me also say this. Height is a direct indicator of health and nutrition. It's another good stat that you can reference to people, as well as you can see physically when you look at the 50-year history of North Korea. This doesn't mean that short people are unhealthy, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that. It means that as a people, as humans grow, taller, this is a major indicator for prosperity due to access to healthcare and due to nutrition and diet. A study by Gregory, by Gregory Clark in a farewell of alms tracks male height and shows that heights were stable from the turn of BC to 80 up until 2000, so 2000 years. Upon the industrial revolution, however, we see jumps from that stagnation from 168 centimeters in height on average to the upwards of 176 centimeters nowadays. Now, I'm not saying that we experienced a giant jump and, and then it didn't say, I'm saying that in, in 2000 years we were stagnant. And then since 2000, we have been rising in our height, like we, we've, which shows a direct correlation to um, health and nutrition. Further, and I'm not gonna get super into homicide rates, but Homicide rates across the entire world went down, right? Most estimates in Europe are placed at 32 per 100,000 as of the 1200s and 1300s. By the 1900s, they were down to 1.4 per 100,000 and have been stable, even counting an increased population and population density. So that last point is very important because if we're maintaining better health, if we're saving kids, if we're living in freedom majoritively, if we are, if we're showing an increase in nutrition and health, if we're showing an increase in literacy, all these things, right? You typically wouldn't associate increased levels of that with an increased supply of it. Typically, when you have increased supply, quality doesn't scale with that normally. However, we're seeing not only in a dramatic, you know, seven times increase in supply in the past um, 200 years in human lives being created, but we're also seeing a, a drastic improve in quality. So 
I'd say things are, are pretty wonderful, praise God, right? So, long story short, today ran long, but it's good to show you stats and verses that can bolster you um, and then help orient your life away from all the negative and turn it into positive, right? God is great and he loves you. Being close to him is being close to goodness. So dive into the word of God, find some good stats and spread this news as I'd rather be sowing seeds of hope than spending all day nursing negativity. Hope is difficult at times, but getting that chicken noodle soup when sick feels good and laughing with your family when you've had a hard day is just the balm you need. Love and hope will destroy evil. Love primarily and hope eternally. Thanks for listening and have a blessed one.